Good evening. Good evening. I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we'll begin, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Good to see everyone out tonight, whether here in person or online. By the way, if you're listening online, if you need anything, please reach out to church leadership. We want to let you know that we're still here for you. It's been a very encouraging weekend for us all. Uh, the Friday night singing, man, I, I was really feeling that singing. I think the college group would agree with me. Um, this morning was encouraging to me. And I want to encourage this church, because last weekend we had the Youth for God, obviously, to keep pushing for our young kids and teens. I'm only 23. I'm not that much older than they are. I'm still very much so a kid in my mind. I remember how encouraging it was. And unlike good old Texas, not as many churches in California, I remember driving hours to get to weekend events like that, so we should continue to encourage the youth and weekends like that. So 1 Corinthians 9 is where I just asked you to open up to you, down verse 24, we'll read a few verses. Paul is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Makes you think of James 3. Let not many of you be teachers. You'll receive a stricter judgment. Which is why when I'm putting together a lesson, John mentioned it this morning, you'll hear Nate or George say the same thing. When you're studying and throwing together a lesson, you're like, man, I have stuff I need to work on. I need to be evaluated on. So like, I appreciate what Paul says about not being disqualified. But I focus here in verse 27, this idea Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. A faithful life will be disciplined. You're like, well, why would that be the case? We talked a few weeks ago about the cost I did about being a disciple of Jesus. And as you can tell on the screen, it looks very similar to the word discipline. The faithful disciple of Jesus will be disciplined. And you hear that word and naturally you're like, I don't like that word discipline. It's natural to fight against that. And you're like, why? Million reasons why. We've been crucified with Christ. We talked about that this morning. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is why the life of a faithful Christian will be disciplined. How is your prayer life? And right away, the teens especially are like, oh, we just heard a whole weekend about this Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We had Reagan come in Sunday morning, Sunday night. We listened to it. I found it encouraging. I found it applicable. I really liked that. But have you made any adjustments since this last weekend? I know some of you have. Have you made any changes in regards to your prayer life with God? Some of you have not. Let me put this in a certain perspective for us. How much time do you think we're spending on our smartphone every day? On your smartphone. 8 to 12 year olds. Not even teens yet. 8 to 12 year olds are spending over 4 hours a day on it. Some are below and some terrifyingly enough are above that. Now where, where do you think the teens are in all this? I think all the adults are cringing right now. 
The teens are over seven hours. I know sometimes it'll be for school or business. I get that. But a lot of it, I'm not exempt. Where you spend time just kind of wandering through the aimless hole we call YouTube or, you know, walking around on social media. But before adults just take away their kids' iPhones, not much better. Not much better. Over five hours. Not a whole lot better. And that's just one aspect of the many distractions in our prosperous country. One of the many distractions that we have. So I'll ask again, how's your prayer life? We consider the amenities of our nation and the amenities of where we live as an advantage. This is a Bible. Here's a Bible. It's my notes. Like, you're like, oh, it's so great. And we're blessed. And we are. And you better be thanking God for the country we live in. We're greatly blessed. But Jesus said, you know, it's not actually an advantage to be wealthy and so free. It's not an advantage to be a Christian in a nation like we are right now. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And stop comparing yourself to millionaire elites on the coast. Compare yourself to the world. And when the question becomes, well, who can be saved? That's what the disciples asked Jesus. And he said, hey, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And a few weeks ago, one of my points was pleading with us all of us, to spend time in the Word of God. And now I will plead with us to be disciplined enough to pray, to be disciplined in that action. I don't want to waste a whole weekend where we heard it, so that was good, and pack it up and don't change anything in our lives. Because materialism, as you see, is going to be a constant battle. Materialism will be a constant battle with our souls. The disciplined disciple will pray. I I was up in Oregon a few years ago, got some family there, and this sweet old lady told me this, this story about a man with prayer. I forgot why, but he died relatively young in his 20s or 30s. Didn't have a whole lot, had a small little apartment with hardwood floor. And when they were cleaning out his belongings after he had passed away, they found two indents by his bed, two little grooves by his bedside. And they quickly put two and two together and said, this man, this young man, had been spending so much time in prayer and devotion to God that he had put indents into the very hard wood floor. I immediately thought about my prayer life compared to that kind of devotion. I said, I often say my prayers, like at dinner, or as I'm finding out people call it supper around here. (laughs) I often say my prayers, but do I really ever pray? Prayer is so simple, we see that a child can do it. And yet it's so profound that we struggle to find words of what to say, or what to pray for, or how to pray, to the point to where we just ask God, listen to our hearts. If you've been working on prayer, let this be further encouragement to you. If you haven't, then perhaps, then perhaps this might be a warning that we should take prayer seriously because prayer does in fact matter and it matters a whole lot more than we give it credit to. I have found in James 5, to kind of wrap up this idea of prayer, if you're struggling to be disciplined in prayer, roughly six times that we are called to pray and it's also how we can pray 
James 5 is the ending of the, of the whole book. It's verses 13 through 20. Let's read that together. Please read with me. James 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? And let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. And Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. My brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here are six times that I hope you can find applicable to be devoted and discipleship and the idea of being disciplined in our prayer life. Number one. Pray when suffering. Very easy enough answer in the text. Is any one of you suffering? The answer, let them pray. I know right now, obviously in a group of this size, including online, of course, there's various trials happening. Relationships, finances, don't know what it is. But the call is to go to God in prayer. To go to God in prayer. Like, all right, here's suffering. And I ask you the question, does God always remove our suffering? And everyone's like, no. That's the answer for most people, no. And some of you are thinking, a thought that I've definitely had and probably share with many of you, well, he should remove my suffering, right? That seems kind of messed up for him not to remove my suffering. Bookmark James 5, just for a minute, go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul is speaking again. He says to keep him from being conceited because of surpassing greatness and revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan who harassed me to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I heard the president say a few months ago that Christianity will have power again in America. And I was like, I don't know if exactly that's the power that God speaks of. The power of weakness, not control. Can God remove our affliction? Yes, you've probably seen it in your own lives. Does he always? No. And you think if anyone would have their suffering removed from them, it'd be Paul. Hand-picked apostle by Jesus. Started countless congregations. Wrote so much of the New Testament. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he had working of many signs and wonders and miracles. You think if anyone's suffering would be removed from them, it'd be the apostle Paul. Why would God tell Paul no? And he says in verse 8, 
Three times I pleaded, please, please, please remove this from me. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. I know a Christian, a devout Christian, who struggles with same-sex attraction. And they said they have prayed that God would remove such a temptation from their life. And so far, the answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. And they understand, probably better than I do, the life of discipline that God has called to them. Don't use phrases, by the way, such as pray the gay away. Don't use a phrase like that. It alienates people. It pushes them away. I've heard and seen stories where people said I was addicted or I had a certain temptation and they prayed God would remove it and the answer was yes. And to that I say praise God. To that I say thank God. Is that always the answer for affliction and suffering to be removed? No. And yet it still helped Paul. For Paul realized that God's grace was sufficient for him. Even in his suffering, the prayer still helped him. Pray when you're happy. When things are going well, go to God in prayer. Like, oh, something much more lighthearted. This seems a lot easier for me. I'm not so sure yet. It says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I was talking with Brother Jim Ward last week, and he said, you know, singing really ought to be praying to God. We just read out of Habakkuk 3. And that is this song. It is a prayer to God. It's communicating with God. Are things going well? You got a kid, you got a job promotion, whatever it may be. He says, thank God, praise God, pray for him. I think it's a bigger issue for Christians than what we give it credit for. Here in Texas, I I think the city of Lubbock or the state of Texas is trying to destroy our car. We had someone a few weeks ago bump right into the back of our car. The damage was seemingly nothing. We signaled to this young person to pull over into the parking lot to see the damage, maybe exchange insurance. And this young lady, she took off. She drove away. And I was like, are you, what? And, and I drove after her. It was, it was kind of fun, actually. I went after, drove after her. I was like, we need to get this license plate. Is that legal? I don't, asking Keith if I'm <laughs> going to get arrested up here. Uh, we, we got the license plate number, reported it. The damage was nothing. She could have just gone free. There was no issue with it. And we're like, wow, that was crazy. I had to ditch the chase because we had to FaceTime family. I was like, oh, family. (laughs) And then not long after that, Kendall's driving by herself under some underpass on Frankfurt, I think. And bam, tire went out. And you're like, oh, the car issue. And this last weekend for a delayed graduation, I was with my family in Florida. And they rented a car to scoot us around town. And we were in that car. And again, tire popped driving on the freeway, blew out. So if Kendall and I ever ride with you, we will destroy your tire. Um, Watch out. We're like, man, this is crazy. But I've seen the last few weeks, the tire pops. You go to the spare tire. You're like, okay, here's the last second ditch resort. Bam, throw that thing on there. We're good to go. Do not treat God the same way. We've all been guilty of that. Things are fine. Bam, someone's sick. Help. I'm I'm in trouble. I'm stuck here. Help. God's mercy is bountiful and it may help you out and cover you. But don't use God. He's not a get out of jail free card. Are things going well? Then pray to God. Remember, 10 lepers were healed and just one told Jesus, thank you. Just one. Number three, we do this a lot. Pray when we're sick. Pray when you're sick. We've done this even during this assembly. 
And again, we've seen sometimes in the sovereign will of God, it is to heal sickness. Sometimes it's not to the point to where a loved one will pass on. That's not the will of God. Now, if you're looking at this text, James 5.14, says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call to the elders of the church. Let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And if you're like me, you're probably wondering, what on earth is the oil being poured on here from the elders? Hey, I have the same question too. Does this mean you get Keith, Zach, and Nate to show up with some essential oils and put it all over you and you're good to go? Is that what this text is teaching? Now, immediately you're like, that doesn't sound right. I do think the principle still is... It's underneath the category of suffering. If you're sick, we should pray to God. I think it was for medicinal usage. I think oils back then were used more uh, to meet medical needs. I found that in Isaiah, talking about this beat up body. Uh, There's bruises, sores, raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. I think this passage, the oil, has to do with medicinal usage. It's not teaching pour some oil on you and the coronavirus is gone or whatever. That's not what this passage is teaching. But I think the context here is supporting a bigger picture, a much more important, deeper spiritual issue. And that means we need, because you look at this text, sick, is it, is it just necessarily physically sick? We need to pray when we are stuck in sickness. Let's read the rest of this and see what it's talking about. So you have the elders pouring the oil, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. And the Lord will raise him up. It sounds like a guarantee. We just talked about it's not a guarantee. And it's like, oh, by the way, it seems like, by the way, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Is this still speaking about physical illness? Therefore, it says, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Why? So that you may be healed. Is it still talking about physical illness? I'm not so sure. I think the greater context is that sick means to be spiritually ill. We need to be praying when we're stuck and struggling in sin. Pray when we're sinning. So 2 Corinthians 12, I brought that up a couple minutes ago. 2 Corinthians 12, the same word here in James, that word sick, it's in red, it's kind of dark, but it's in red, that same word sick can also be translated weak. It's the same word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 12. My power is made perfect in weakness. It could be said power is made perfect in sickness. I'll boast all the more gladly in my sicknesses. For when I am sick, I am strong. And when I see the word can be used that way, and I look at the context of James 5, the guarantee that God will raise them up, and that God will forgive their sins, I see this passage speaking more to the spiritual sickness about sin about sin and then it goes on therefore confess your sins to one another pray for one another so that you may be healed and the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working and when was the last time we confessed sin to someone even just a good friend or a spouse when was the last time we did that it's a humbling experience and i think of the sin of pride could be a whole other sermon. I'll just make sure to point it out to us that everyone who's arrogant in heart is an abomination, an abomination to the Lord. When I think abominable sins, I think murder. I think adultery. Now those are bad. But God says, you know what's also rotten and an abomination to me? This haughty, prideful, arrogant heart. When you think about Satan in the simplest terms, what's Satan's deal? He thinks he can challenge God. 
Talk about arrogance. I think the root of almost every sin is pride. I can handle it. It's not that bad. It's fine. It's pride in the way. We need to humble ourselves and confess our sins so righteous people can pray over us. And the Lord will raise us up for our sins and God will forgive us. That's the guarantee we have in Christ. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. And I love this. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working, which goes right into the example of what that power can look like. Reagan talks about this briefly, talking about the idea that we limit the power of prayer. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently, it might not rain, and it doesn't rain for over three years, and he prays again, and then it does, and you're like, wow. Why was Elijah praying for this? You remember the story, what's happening here. Israel, he had turned to Baal. They had turned to Baal. King Ahab had led him that way. And he was praying that they, for signs such as this, Elijah was praying for signs like this, so they'd turn away from idolatry and look to Yahweh. Look to God. Why? Elijah loved Israel. He, if he didn't love his country, he would not have told them, we need to repent. We need to pray when our nation is in need. Yes, there's a pandemic. Yes, there's even racial injustice and arguments and unrest in our country. But beneath all of that right now, there is a deeper issue of sin. That's the deeper issue. Elijah loved Israel. He stood alone, not falling into the temptation of materialism. Their country was pretty good. They had secure borders. The economy was doing all right. Why not go for Baal? Materialism, I mentioned this in Bible class a few weeks ago, materialism is almost always connected with idolatry. We pray to the gods, the God give us our crops. We sacrifice to the gods, they give us a victory in war. We warn all the time about be careful with sexual temptation and take steps to prevent that. We warn all the time about alcohol to the point to where most of us, we decide let's not even touch it for drunkenness is a sin. And Elijah, he was seeking change not only for King Ahab, but Elijah was seeking for change for repentance of an entire nation. We have to be careful not to love the blessings more than the blesser. I have seldom heard warnings about loving America so much that it comes before God. I think that's because for 300 years in our country, being a Christian has been normal. It's created this distortion of power, of prosperity, of dominance. It's beneficial even. It's why we've been prosperous. And I believe there is a certain amount of truth to where God has blessed us for trying to follow things His way. But it's come so far now that it's created this distortion, this unbiblical mindset of that homeness here in the world. This is my home. Dominant culturally for hundreds of years. Prosperous materially. It's our home. Things are supposed to go well for us here. It's our place. It's what we do. It's how we think here. We are Christian here. And that's been dwindling down as time is going on. We need revival. West Texas, I feel like, is one of the bubbles left when it comes to where God is somewhat being tried to put first. But we're Christian here. And we very much so enjoy being thought well of for that. 
We expect things to go well. And poverty, we might not admit it, but so many times, including I look at my life, poverty, sickness, suffering, death are the worst things that could happen to us. Because we expect us to be comfortable, to have an easy life, to be accepted, to be in charge. The call to be a Christian was not like Elijah. Elijah and his prayer, his powerful prayer from a righteous man, was a sojourner. He was alone. And he was trying to point an entire country back to God. Being a Christian overall has been, been being a good citizen. And we get angry. I feel it too. You might feel it too. We get angry as if someone will treat my Christianity or treat my point of view of things as if it's not the norm. We get angry at that. You're taking away my, my culture. You're taking away my history. And now we're getting worried about where our rights are being pushed upon. You're taking these things away from me. Because whether we realize it or not, and all of us, we'd say we denounce things like the prosperity gospel. But whether we realize it or not, our Christianity assumes control, assumes acceptance, dominance. It's supposed to go well. It's our way here. If you don't like Christianity, if you don't like our country, then go somewhere else. And there's just enough truth in the principle of, if, you know, of godly principles as to why we're prosperous. Well, don't get drunk. Then perhaps you'll probably keep your job. Your marriage will probably go better for you. Work hard as unto the Lord. You'll probably make more money. Your country will probably be a little more prosperous. There's just enough truth to it to get enough traction to get going, to be seeing that being a Christian means to have a Christian nation, and it means to be successful. What about the millions of Christians that live in third world countries? And this has been blown totally out of proportion. Spin-offs of principles of hard work and devotion to Jesus, and we put them over a devoted prayer life, over loving Him, dying with Him, and being with Jesus forever. And it comes first before that. Elijah's prayer. When I read Elijah's prayer, pointing and begging for his nation to turn back to God, I think of myself. What if I was the one sojourner in America? And I'm not. I've got brothers and sisters in Christ all over our blessed country. But when I read this text about a powerful prayer, of a righteous person with a powerful prayer, I long not to be a domesticated, comfort-seeking, entertainment-addicted, prosperity-loving, security-craving, approval-desiring Christian. I don't want to be that. I don't want to look at that. I don't want to be a part of that. I want to have otherworldly power behind me. And it's shown in my weakness, not in my strength. And right now we get, we're scared and we look around and we're like, where do our rights end? I've seen people even say, let's take up arms and protect our rights. When Jesus said, love your enemies. And he said, pray for those who persecute you. Now I'm not talking about self-defense. I'm talking about that Christians were not called by God to turn to violence. We are called to pray. We're called to pray. Elijah prayed that his nation would turn away from idolatry to God. I want real, spiritual, otherworldly power in my prayer life to God. The one that I see where it says, when you see a righteous person, that they have great power in their prey. I want countercultural lifestyle that injects into my life because that power is from God, not me. Just like Elijah, who pointed his whole country to Yahweh. We got Planned Parenthood coming to town. 
Stand up for what's right. We talked about it this morning with injustice, whether the widow plead their cause or it's racial injustice, whatever it is, the Christian is called to stand up for it. Pray for awakening in our country. Don't just point to your ideas or just simply to a specific party. Ultimately, point to God. That's what Elijah did. The changing of a heart in ourselves. Pray for awakening because we love our country. And the last one, as we begin to wrap up here. We need to pray when Christians stray from the fold of God. Verses 19 and 20, my brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Go to God in prayer before we judge, before we say, I can't believe she's doing that. Go to God in prayer for the Christian who wanders away from the truth because we're supposed to love them. It's the Luke 15 principle. The wandering sheep, we don't say, what is that sheep thinking? What are they doing? That sheep is dumb. We're just going to leave them over there. We need to pray for that brother. Pray for that sister. And go and reach and get them and bring them back into the fold of God. That's what we're called to do. And the one who restores someone's strength will cover their sins because God will forgive their sins. Only God forgives. Only Christ saves. And so we are called to pray when we're suffering. If things are going well, pray. Are you sick? Pray. Are you stuck in sin? Pray. Is your country in need of revival? Pray. Do you see Christians wandering away? Pray, pray, pray. Has it been clear enough to us to pray? And the distractions in our life and the secular mindset alone limits that power. We limit it far too often. The depth of prayer. I always like thinking this way. You'll hear it often in my preaching when you think about whom are you talking to? Who are you speaking to? The Creator. You know, in the Old Testament, there's one day where the high priest went in the Holy of Holies. One. And now that veil is torn because Jesus is our high priest and we can go to God in a relational prayer. The same God who said, let there be light, is the same God who hears us when we pray. The same God who promised Abraham descendants multiplying, who knows, 10,000-fold of the stars. It's the same God who hears us when we cry. The same God who led Moses to lead Israel out of bondage through the Red Sea is the same God who hears us when we're suffering. The same God who protected David with the friends around him like Jonathan and told David, I'll sit you on the throne, a descendant of yours, forever. The same God who hears our concerns and matters. The same God when Hezekiah prayed, when the Assyrians circled around Jerusalem and God sent an angel of death to wipe them all out. It's the same God who hears us when we pray for our country. The same God who told Zechariah, in one day I'll remove the iniquity from the land as he stood there in filthy garments and God clothed him. And righteousness. The same God who came in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins, and rose on the third day is the same one who hears us when we pray. Prayer matters. And until we become disciplined in that aspect of our life, we will not have otherworldly righteous power on our side. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time He may exalt us, casting all our anxieties on him because he cares.
cares for you. That's why the discipline of prayer. And now this is a time where we usually invite people to come on up. I don't know if we take full advantage of it necessarily. We've talked about prayer this whole time. If you're happy, if you're suffering, whatever it is, we invite people to come forward and the elders even come up here and we'll pray for you. I hope it's not pride. That's why we don't come up here. I hope it's not because it's embarrassment. It's a family. It's supposed to be here. When it comes to being baptized into Christ, that's how you start this life of prayer. We had an anonymous poll sent out to the teens where they were able to respond. Weekend sounds like it went pretty well. But it was an anonymous poll where they could say certain things. I don't know who you are, but one of the teens said, man, one of the teens said, I don't see the point in being baptized because I won't be a good enough Christian. Young man, young woman, I don't know who you are, but none of us are good Christians. You are not saved by your own doings. You're saved in Christ alone and the baptism that he has offered to us. For even our greatest deeds are nothing but filthy rags before God. Don't count on yourself. Come to Christ. That is the invitation. If you would like to take it up, the song is about to be sung. But before we do that, and the invitation will be yours then, I'd like us all to pray together, and then we will sing our song. Please pray with me. God, we praise you. Our salvation is in you alone. We don't understand what you've given us. We don't understand the honor it is to come before your throne. Teach us to pray, Lord. Let us repent. Pierce our hearts if it's your will to come to you in baptism, to come to you humbly to confess sin. We pray for those who are suffering, those who are joyful. We thank you, God. We thank you for a nation that tries to put you first. And we pray for the future leadership and the current leadership that we point people back to God. Forgive us of our sins, for they are many. We pray for Christians who are straying. Let us love them and bring them back to you for your wills, not that we be lost, but for all of us to repent. You've torn down the veil, King Jesus, and it is in that Savior's name I pray. Amen.